0: Welcome to Paranormal Roundtable. I'm your host, Josh Turner, and we have a show for you tonight. My uh, coordinates to get a hold of me Josh Turner at PRT Podcast.com, Josh Turner at PRT Podcast.com. That's how you can get a hold of me. Also, you can send me a, a friend request on uh, Facebook. Let me know that you are a listener of the show, and so I can approve your friend request. And uh, if you don't do that, then probably not going to get a response. So um also Instagram Josh Turner 940. You want to follow me on Instagram Josh Turner 940. Uh, so those are ways you can get hold of me and um we can chat possibly. If you have a story, uh let me know. Let me hear it. And uh maybe we could see what we could do about having your story told on the show or you can come on and tell it yourself. So tonight we have somebody that's going to be telling some stuff, some stories. But before we get into that, I want to let everybody know that uh, we are sponsoring the Bigfoot, uh, Texas Bigfoot Conference down in Jefferson. And that's going to be the 14th, 15th, and 16th, I believe. Right, Barton? I think that's correct. Wow. And, and so, Barton's going to be there. I'm going to be there. Ken Gerhard's going to be there. And uh, a bunch of our friends are going to be there. Bigfoot Rob from Michigan, he's going to be there. I believe Tex will be there. Um and a few other people have told me recently that they're going to be going. I know that uh, Lyle Blackburns will be there, too. He's another friend of ours. So we're all going to be down there in the, at the Bigfoot Conference. I hope everybody shows up. Anne Celine, a friend of ours, is going to be there. And, of course, my wife will be there. And uh, Letitia, which is Barton's wife, she'll be there calling the shots for Barton. And my wife will be probably calling the shots for me. I'm just kidding. I tell everybody what to do. No. I'm... <laughs> so, so what we have tonight, we have a really, really, really good guest. I've been trying to, to get him on for a while. We've been talking back and forth for months, and he didn't get to make the, the Dogman conference. I was really disappointed about that. I really wanted him there. The, the only two that didn't make it really were him and Steve Stockton. So um, it was unfortunate that he couldn't make it, but now we have him on the show. And we're going to record tonight. First, let me give you this Paranormal Roundtable group. Go join because you can win something. We give away every week. What you do is you, when we drop this episode on the Paranormal Roundtable group on Facebook, you go make a comment, you leave a comment, and if your comment is chosen, if you're chosen through your comment, then you win a prize. And that prize is an autographed book automatically, and then you might win some other stuff too, whatever we're doing for giveaways at the time for the month, so it's a pretty cool it's a pretty cool deal and also if you're a patreon member don't forget twenty dollar tier you automatically get a uh, paranormal roundtable swag um if you are a a a ten dollar tier after three months you get p r t swag so twenty dollars automatically and then ten if you know it's it's three months so be sure and uh like it subscribe and join our patreon the other thing I was gonna tell you is Barton has a group now, and it's called Inhumanoids with Barton Nunley, and that group has grown grown really quickly. It's over three. I don't know what you have you now at thirty two hundred members now or something like that. Like
1: um, something like that, yeah, yeah. And 3, our, 3, our group 2, is,
0: I think my group is the main group is about eighty two hundred or something. We're trying to grow that, you know. And we have Paranormal Lounge with Nellie. We have a Paranormal Prayer Group and that's ne- uh, Nellie's, and then a PRT fan page that was created by Chris or uh, Bill Stern. Chris Clough, Curtis Turner, they're always in there doing memes. Um, and no, we're not a cult. I was accused of that. Really good memes, too. Yeah, really good <laughs> memes. Some of it makes fun of me. I mean, I you know, had one making fun of 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 uh, Ken about the Shasta incident down at the at the conference. Um, so, so we've had a few, you know, memes. But people are like, oh, it's like a cult. And I'm like, okay, dude, maybe you need to do some research on how a cult really is. I'm not handing out jumpsuits and giving you, you know, running shoes and asking, telling you that the great comet's going to come and take us to the planet Zarkon. All right. That's not happening. Not yet anyway, but uh, we'll see. Uh, you know, don't rule anything out. You never know how this could turn out. You know, this is getting, we're blowing up here, but anyway, without further ado, I want to introduce my guest, uh, Tim Kumbo Baker. A lot of people know him as Kumbo. His name is Tim, but, uh, I'm going to give you the floor, Tim. Tell us a little bit about yourself, Tim.
2: Okay, um, I started researching Bigfoot back in the mid nineteen seventies uh with my friend Jim Hart, who just passed away a couple of weeks ago, and I'm missing dearly but um Jim and I met when uh, I was a freshman in college and he was a senior in high school, and we sort of instantly became friends and um he uh we were out here on the farm one night and Uh, hunting wild dogs and a booger, Bigfoot, cut loose hollering about a half a mile east of us there on the back of the farm. And Jim says, That sounds like a Bigfoot call. And I said, It is. You're kidding. No, I said, They're out here. And, uh, anyway, that was the start of a long, uh, 40 plus years of, uh, of researching. Like Actually, that was in 1975. Um, anyway, I have, um, after I got out of college, um, I worked for um, several government contractors, mostly um, for NASA and for the Army Missile Command, and I worked for uh, Wiley Laboratories, and I worked for McDonnell Douglas Astronautics, and uh, Colazzo Systems Analyst and a number of other, uh, frontline contractors. And I held a, um, top secret and nuclear queue clearance for, um, combined total of around 31 years. Um, I traveled all over the country. I've researched in 43 of 50 states. Um, I've researched in somewhere like, I think, All added up about maybe somewhere 11 to 14 uh, countries outside the U.S. and um, obviously outside the U.S., but, and I will tell you, um, I've been in Africa, Central America, um, a little bit of Europe, and the only place in Canada and the only place I have ever found any hard evidence of Bigfoot outside this country was Canada. Um, I have heard lots of stories about them in uh in Africa um, and in Central America um, and uh, in Europe uh, but I um I have not found any uh, hard evidence in any of those places now I didn't get to spend really any time any decent time feet on the ground in Europe yet but um, but I'm hopefully I'm going to get to do that in the future but i have um i've been doing this pretty seriously i re- i took my first written report uh of a bigfoot encounter in 1978 about 5 miles east of where i'm sitting right now and i did my first um out of state research in uh nineteen seventy nine uh myself and a guy went over into northwest Georgia, owned property where his uh his great grandparents lived. Um and we found lots of evidence of, of Bigfoot over there. and we actually uh spent the night over there in a in a pretty dead spooky place <laughs> and there was all kind of things that went on around us, which is and it's still a hot hot place. To this day, but um probably at one time uh, back before the not finding bigfoot guys uh, probably myself and <laughs> myself and tal uh, uh tal Branco or bill White were the most probably the two most widely traveled bigfoot researchers in the world uh, Bill did a lot of a lot of uh, study and stuff out of the country. His job allowed him to do a lot of traveling out of the country as And mine allowed me to do a a lot of traveling all over the country as well as some out of the country. But, um, well, I figured in Uncle Sam owned me from, from eight to five and after five o'clock was my time and I could do whatever I wanted to do. And I often did. And I quickly learned, um, quickly learned that there were a lot of, a lot of booger activity on a lot of government installations.
1: And,
2: and
1: yeah, fairly quickly. About that a bit, Tim? do what now? Yeah, so we was talking about that. So let's talk about that a little bit. We were talking about that some last night. So yeah, tell mm-hmm. us a little bit of what you know about that, about the government's connection to these uh, Bigfoot creatures. Well, I believe
2: that I personally believe that a a lot of these government installations either they were put in that location. To protect the Bigfoot and or conceal them, or they were put or that the Bigfoot were brought into these, some of these, uh, installations. And, um, but one thing's for sure, they can't keep them hemmed up in there. Um, but I know Fort Lewis, Washington is crawling with them. Uh, we encountered them in Fort Bragg, White Sands, uh, White Sands Missile Range, Edwards Air Force Base, Eglin Air Force Base. Yes, believe it or not, Edwards Air Force Base. There are not very many, but there are some. Um, uh, Yakima Proving Grounds, um, j- just, uh, I'm trying to think where, I mean, just all over the place. I mean, it, it's really amazing where all they are. Um, few believe it or not up in aberdeen proving grounds um found them um found them in in western massachusetts um i spent a good bit of time on some couple of projects up at seabrook nuclear plant on the atlantic coast of um of new hampshire did a lot of research in, in in new hampshire and vermont and a little bit over in in upstate new york and up and went up into spent a Pretty good bit of time up in Maine, rooting around. I never found any Bigfoot up there. Never even found any really decent, fresh sign. But I saw some weird things happen. I mean, I saw—I ran into some really weird stuff. Now, this was back in the—we're um, talking about in the uh, late eighties, early early nineties, back before anybody had even heard about the Bennington Triangle and. I went up to Bennington and rooted around up there because I had heard of, uh, you know, through the grapevine, some reports up in that area. And I spent I spent uh, several days up in that area. Never found any Bigfoot, but I definitely saw some weird crap that went on up in the mountains up there that I couldn't explain. But I never was able to yeah, get close fun. enough to it to see what it was. Say Say what?
1: No, I just wonder what, what kind of uh, other activity did well, you witness up there? The
2: well, I saw, I saw a lot of uh, strange lights up on top of uh, um, a big mountain up there a couple of different times um, out north of the town of Bennington. And uh, now I hear, you know, what was crazy years later, I heard people talking about the Bennington Triangle. And I had a little bit of... Research figured out what that was. I said, well, crap, that's where I was, you know, 10 years ago or whatever. Um, And uh, yeah, that is definitely a weird place. There's, there's strange things that go on up there now.
1: Yeah, we're getting a lot of, uh, a lot of reports of weird lights in association with uh, Bigfoot investigations. This left and right, they're coming orbs or lights or whatever you want to call them. UFOs. Things like they're, you know, they're, they're going hand in hand and i mean i saw I saw
2: multicolored lights that were just brilliantly bright, i mean as bright as a welding arc um up there up in up on the tops of this up on the top of this one mountain um Now I saw it from a distance, i never I never was able to figure out how to get close to it, see what in the world it was, but I also found a place where um, it's not like this today. But when I was up there in um, in the early nineties, very early nineties, I found a place out north of Bennington, and in north part of the the town of Bennington, and there was a road, and there were houses on this road. I mean, really nice houses, beautiful houses, some of them. That looked like the people had just walked away from them, just left them sitting there. There was still furniture and stuff in them, and I mean, you could have walked in there and cleaned it up and already living in it it looked like but it but while i was in that area i was totally creeped out just i felt like something was watching me the whole time and um i didn't hang around I, I went up i went up and looked at two of these houses that were sitting there and uh and like i said they were they still had furniture and all kind of stuff in them and uh and i was i was really creeped out uh, i didn't hang around there very much but um most government facilities that i've been around if you talk to the right people um you'll find out that there is there are some kind of a bigfoot stories or paranormal stories that that people can tell you and these aren't just um and these are these are reliable people these aren't just you know fly-by-night folks um um and a lot of them you know wouldn't talk to me until you know i was able to assure them that hey i'm taking i'll take them seriously and i you know i showed them some of my um, notebooks with you know with some of my signing reports and stuff in it and um and then they would you know i'd just let them read them and and they'd many times open up to me and you know, tell me things but um I was during the during the decades of the eighties and the nineties um I was amazed the varying habitat that that Bigfoot can survive in i mean I found them in the most uh desolate desert areas like Edwards Air Force Base. if anybody's ever been to it, that place is desolate and um but but not too many miles away to the to the west, across some hills and stuff, there's an area where there's irrigated agricultural fields and um I was able to determine that they some of them um would travel back and forth over there you know for water and they even they knew enough about' them there at Edwards that they knew that you know this little group would hang out and raid the dumpsters behind the n c o club you know this particular one who might raid the dumpster behind the, the B, you know, the child hall, the, you know, BX child hall. This one might, ha- you know, raid the dumpsters behind the, the officers club. I mean, they knew the habits of the few that lived in the area, you know, because there were so few of them and there. One, you know, once they were coming into the base, you know, there were not any hiding them. And the, uh, I was told that, um, that the security people there were trained not to hurt them, you know, not to shoot at them or anything like that, just to let them go about and do their business. Now, one odd thing, one odd thing was, uh, <laughs> went out there one time to meet the shuttle. When the shuttle would land at, uh, at Edwards, someone would have to, you know, a team would have to go out there and deintegrate some of the experiments off of it. Before they um, put it back up, swung it back up onto the back of a 747, and flew it back down to to you know, Cape Kennedy in Florida. And so they would re- rotate who would go out there and do that. And um, I got out there, and and they ended you know, they end up extending the mission a few days. So we didn't have much to do, and so I got to talking to this uh, one gentleman who was a senior NCO out there, and uh, he was uh, very knowledgeable about about Bigfoot, and, um, and this was a gentleman that I had uh, first met at another base, and here, some years later, uh, when I went out to Edwards, I recognized him, and he recognized me, but we were talking. And he said, "He said you're not going to believe this." He said, "But before the shuttle lands, you're going to see some cars out there uh, along the west side. I mean, or vehicles, not cars, vehicles out there, spaced. They'll be back a half a mile or so, or you know, six hundred to eight hundred yards or so back away from the um, strip." You know spaced every so often and one of their main purpose one of their purposes is is to keep their eye out for any bigfoot that might come wandering through the area um about the time the shuttle's landing so the last thing they want to do is um have one walking across the the landing strip when the shuttle's landing and it show up on national tv or gets you know smashed by the shuttle on national tv <laughs>
1: Right, we can't have that now. Oh no! And uh, and <laughs> I thought he was
2: pulling my leg at first, but when the shuttle landed, sure enough, there were vehicles out there just like he said. Now I didn't have any binoculars or anything, and I couldn't, I couldn't take a look at what they were doing. So I don't know if there was any of them watching out uh, to the north and to the west and stuff. Uh, you know, up into the, the canyons and things where these where they said someone would come from and, uh, into the north, you know, north, northeast. But, um, but the vehicles were out there. I can tell you that. But, um, uh, but I, uh, I know that, you know, you hear people talk about Dumbs deep underground military bases. Yeah. I can tell you for sure that at many bases that there are deep underground facilities. Now, what all they do, and, I, and I've been in some of them, and some of them are, you know, they're uh, for data gathering and stuff like that. But they're a, a protected place that supposedly could withstand a nuclear strike. Um, for the technology of the day. Now, though, with some of the bomb technology that we have, um, some of these mega bunker buster mother of all bombs <laughs> that, that we have that even some of the deeper, more protected sites are not safe. But I can also tell you that, uh, there are government lands not necessarily military bases or anything like that, but there are definitely government lands out there that have sort of hidden entrances to underground facilities. And I don't know what in the world they would be for. And like I said, and these are not these are not um, military facilities. Now there are some out there that have been built specifically to protect parts of our government. That are, that are out in sort of remote areas, but there are others that, um, that I don't know what their purpose is. Um, there are others that,
1: that if you go too near them, you're going to get turned away. Um, but I'm, I, um, uh, I have been uh,
2: threatened around some of these places. I have had my, threatened to lose my job. Um, I have had, um, um, at some very places that you wouldn't believe that anybody would do this, but um, I've been in there researching and have had, People encounter me and the next thing I know, I'm being called into my boss's office and he tells me, he said, he said, if you think that, uh, then I'm going to let your Bigfoot hobby jeopardize the most valuable contract that we have, you're wrong. If I ever hear about you being down there again, you're gone. I mean, I've had that happen to me. Um, so there are sensitive areas scattered around the country that um they don't want that they certainly don't want me poking around
1: um right. so what you're I've saying been, to is there uh there's a definite the, de- the government definitely knows what these things are and they don't mm-hmm. want to they want to keep a lid on it as much as possible
2: correct i'll give you a for instance um there's an area there is a um, a um, an area that's not very far from me that is a uh, part of the national park system and I had been hearing s- some reports of some sightings around one of the parks in this area and I just happened to be i was uh, away on a business trip and um, I was on my way back to work, and I just happened to be driving right past this park and so I pulled in and there was a there was a, um a, a nature walk through there and we're, I, not really a nature walk, but there was a nice paved walkway through this park, and kiosks set up along this uh along the uh this paved walkway that told about you know what was you know what went on there and you know what this thing you know what caused this and you know what um you know explaining the nature of the site and this was a totally innocent thing and i got there and i was the only person in there and it was about i don't know about three o'clock in the afternoon beautiful day and um I had taken my dog with me, because where I was going to be, where I had stayed the night before, was a dog-friendly hotel. So I had my old German Shepherd Bo with me, and Bo and I were out walking down the trail, and we were enjoying things. And all of a sudden, Bo, and uh, anybody that knew Bo. He knows that he was a he was a chicken when it came to um, to Bigfoot. He Uh, started acting sort of hinky and i started getting the creeps my skin started crawling and i felt like that something was just south of us in this grove of young pine trees that um and these were machine planted pines so they were in very neat rows but they were not very big the largest one was only like four or five inches in diameter but they were just high enough that you could see underneath them. They were tall enough that they had already started shading out all the briars and stuff. Um, So you could see clearly underneath these things for 50, 60 yards. And I was sitting there looking under these pines and Bo was alerted in that area also. And all of a sudden, He whirled and took off running and ran back to the truck and jumped up in the back of the truck. And I'm sitting there just still staring into those pines. And I started smelling something, which a sort of a sick, sweet smell, which I've learned that that is often their breath. And it's when you're very, very close to them, usually within 25, 30 feet or less that you can smell their breath, you know, in, in the this time of year, in the late summer, early fall. And, and it's from eating, you know, old fruit and stuff like that. But I could smell this one's breath. I knew it was close, but I could not see it. And in the distance, I became aware of a car approaching at a high rate of speed. And in this particular park, the speed limit is very strictly enforced, and this car was obviously going way over the speed limit. And all of a sudden, and I hear the car stand on the brakes and turn into the part of the park where I was. And he came running up beside my truck, and he got on his PA, and he yelled at me to leave the park immediately. And I'm like, what? And he got out. and He walked a short distance toward me and he had his hand on his weapon. And he said, if you don't get over here, get in your vehicle and leave immediately, I'm going to arrest you. And so I went walking towards him and I said, I said, what's going on? And he said, get your tail end in the truck and leave. So I got myself in the truck and Bo jumped in there with me. Cranked up, I turned around and we left. He came right in behind us and closed the gate into that part of the park. And I never have figured that one out. Number one, how did he know I was there? Because this place was in a a sort of was in a fairly remote area.
1: How did he know I I was there and
2: what was going on in
1: there? You know,
2: stuff like this, uh, and I've heard lots of other stories like that, not just from me, but I mean, I mean, I've, I've, I've heard other serious researchers, you know, tell stories like this, but I know that I firmly believe that the government knows a lot about, about these, but they're, you know, keeping it from us, uh, supposedly for
1: our own good, I believe. Let me ask you this, Tim. How many yeah. times have you seen or encountered Bigfoot in your life?
2: Oh, Lord. <laughs> a bunch.
1: I, I
2: I couldn't even begin to guess how many times. Um, first time I ever saw one, I was four years old. It was right outside my bedroom window. And I was taught about them from the time I was a little kid. My now I'm 66 years old, fixing to be 67. Um, so when I learned about them back, I was born in 55 and, uh, when I was learning about them as a young child, you know, the word Bigfoot had not even been invented yet. That didn't come along till late sixties. My, my parents and my grand, my grandfather, Granddaddy Baker called them catamounts. Uh, my, uh, Grandmother, she'd call them catamounts. My grand, Granny Baker, she'd call them catamounts, but she also called them the neighbors. My great grandmother called them Nununui. That's the uh, Cherokee word for them. Um, neighbors to the west of us called them Hanks. Uh, a lot of the other neighbors around called them boogers. Uh, some of the neighbors that lived just east of us called them no heads. Uh, because if you look at the, uh, the, um, you know, the movie and the, in the book, uh, the legend of Boggy Creek, the poster that was done for the movie and all and the cover in the book cover, you know, where there's one going away from them. You'll know why they call them no heads. Cause you know, when they're going away from them, yeah. they're sort of hunched over. You can't see their head. Same thing. Um, there, there, there are a number of pictures of them out there that and artist can, you know, drawings of them. Where they're going away from you, know, and you can't see their heads. There's actually a um, no head holla near here, and a no head holla road that <laughs> goes down in it. Um, but I mean, they had a bazillion different names. But um, you know, I saw my first one when I was when I was uh, four. But we'd had many encounters with them out here. I mean, we didn't have air conditioning back then, and we used to hear them at night a lot. And, um, you know, you know, you'd hear him screaming and stuff, you know, what's that? What's that? oh it's just that old catamount. Don't worry about it. And, um, yeah. Um, but I, I saw my first one up close, really, you know, up close, full body encounter as, as a young adult in night, in October of 1980. Um, and that was, right here, about 100 yards from where I'm sitting right now on our farm. And um, I had other encounters with them and close-up encounters with them out here on the farm over the years. Um, um, I've run into them many times down in Mississippi. I had a very up-close encounter with one, couple of years ago out in oklahoma um closest i've been to one in a long time it it was it really shocked me and what shocked me about it was it was walking across a gravel road right in front of me and it did not make a sound and i couldn't hardly breathe without crunching gravel this thing didn't make a any sound that i could hear and, and nobody else heard it either but we could clearly see it on our thermals and uh, my buddy jimmy osmer and i encountered uh we encountered three of them here just uh back in the spring um not too far from here you know not too far from athens alabama but you know i've had a lot of a lot of encounters with them over the years you know, i was anybody knows me very much and heard me tell this story a bunch, I was, uh, (laughs) we were out one night researching in an area that used to be very, very prolific as far as sightings went. And, um, we'd had, already had some, some wild things happen that night. And, uh, two of us, myself and another researcher from us from St. Louis, uh, Ken Hartung, we decided to, we were parked on a road, a dead-end road. We were pointed out. And, um, by the way, anybody, any new researchers that are listening to me, when you go out there and researching and you park your vehicle, you always, always, always point your vehicle in the safe way out. So that all you have to do is jump in it, crank it up, Throw it in gear, stomp it on the stump to the floor, and or what, whatever you think you need to do, and you're pointed out. You don't have to do a bunch of juking around and backing up and turning and backing up and turning. You know,
1: you need to be right. pointed oh, in the safe tactical direction. Tactical out. Exactly, Joe, Joe Barger when he was yeah when he was visiting, he, yeah. he would do that, and I'm like yeah, yeah So you do now, that every time. He goes yeah, I t- tactical park every time because I need to get out. Hey, so that's that's yeah. a really good idea.
2: Right, my dad taught that's me that really from the time I was. My dad taught me that, you know, from the time I was just a little kid. And uh, Anyway, so we the truck was pointed out, and there was a, a hedgerow going down both sides of this, this dead-end road, and on one side of it, the south side of it, was a soybean field. On the north side of it was a big hay field. And there were gaps in the, in the hedgerows there, right where we'd parked, so that the Farmers could get their implements through the hedgerow and out into the fields. So I decided to walk out into the north field, the pasture, and Kim decided to walk out and walk down the side where the uh, where the soybeans were. And there was also a thicket of wild plums uh, there on the north side in that hedgerow that I wanted to see, you know, if they were bearing yet. So I walked. I walked down there, and and I got down there, and I ended up having to relieve myself. So, you know, I unzipped my zipper and started taking care of business. And and I'm as I'm standing there, I became aware that something or someone was literally breathing on the back of my head and down my neck. And I whirled around, and I whirled around, and I hit a juvenile Bigfoot that was about seven foot tall. I hit him in the chest and an abdomen with my shoulder and my shoulder left elbow. Needless to say, it greatly startled both of us, and that's an understatement. He bared his teeth and growled at me, and I let loose a string of appropriate expletives. And as it turned out, we both needed to run in about the same direction to get where we needed to go. And we actually bumped into each other again. I had a little dozy do as we took off running. In the meantime, Ken on the other side of the hedgerow, out in the field to the south, he hears all this and he hears feet beating. He hears me running. And he hears the heavy doosh, 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 of the booger running off, and Ken takes off running to the truck. It was, it was not real late, And the in the in the moon. There was a bright moon up, and as I came through the gap in the hedgerow, Ken was passing in, uh, in in the the hedge in his the hedgerow on his side of the road. He was passing a small little clump of wild black cherry trees. As he ran past that, I saw one step out of those cherries and swatted Ken across the shoulder blades as he went by. Now, Ken's a big old tall, lanky boy, and he can run like the wind. But I can tell you this, he caught a a couple of extra overdrive gears that I didn't know he had. (laughs) He beat me to the truck. Now, this is another thing that you need to remember, aspiring researchers. Do not, if if it's your vehicle, you do not leave the the keys in the vehicle or with anyone else. Because if something crazy starts happening, they will lock you out of your own vehicle. Because, Ken started trying to get into the vehicle which we had left unlocked, and the doors were locked. There were two people already in the vehicle. They would not open the door. I started and I grabbed my remote out of my pocket and started hitting the unlock button as fast as it would unlock the people in the car in the truck would relock it. Ken was over there on the driver's on the passenger side front seat door, yanking the doorknob. Yeah, the handle is just as fast as he could. Luckily, he managed to hit it, yank it at precisely the right time, and get that door open. And once he got that door open, I was able to unlock and, and keep it the the driver's side door unlocked. Piled in the thing, and we took off. Now, the other interesting thing is, that, well, there were many interesting things that happened down there that night. But on our way out, as we came around a curve through the woods. There were two trees, two six to eight inch diameter trees pushed down across the road in front of us that weren't there when we came in. And one from either side. So I didn't have any choice. I had a, I had a pretty good brush guard on that truck. So I had to just plow right through the treetops and, um, and, and the limbs and stuff and bounce over the trunks to, uh, to get out of there. So, um, don't think that they won't try to hem you in. Um, that's happened to me many times, even out here on the farm. I mean, many, many times I've been back to the back of the farm and um, and when I come out, there's a tree shoved down across the road. Um, wow. I have,
1: yeah, they didn't work you yeah, leave.
2: Exactly. I have some pictures of a, that we took up in a place we I researched up in Iowa where we um we hiked back into an area and I saw this I saw this stick formation right off the trail going in and I took a picture of it and on the way out part of that stick formation was thrown down across the, the trail as well as a, a tree pushed down right there. And so I got I got before and after pictures. Um but um that kind of stuff's pretty common, believe it or not. But back to the Bigfoot, um, the types of Bigfoot, it didn't take me very long into my research back in the um, 70s and 80s to figure out that there were, there was more than just one single kind. The ones that we normally saw around here weren't, didn't really look like the kinds in the Patterson-Gimlin film. However, the ones that live here on our farm do. and so I started calling them the, the type one that I call it is the patty type like you see in the Patterson-Gimlin film. And the type two is more of what I call the swamp ape type or, or Neanderthal type and if you want to see what a type two looks like you can uh google the book them plus us or them and us and look at what this is. uh They did a bunch of new research and and figured out that the old drawings and stuff, depictions of the Neanderthal man, were not what we thought they were, but they were much more uh, primitive looking. And look at the drawings in there, and lose the vertical slit pupils in the stone-tipped spears, and change the nose to look a little bit more human-like, and you've got a Type two Bigfoot. Uh, there's also a type three Bigfoot, which is much less common. Um, and they have like a baboon shaped head or they're, some people call them the snouted ones or the baboon headed ones. If you want to see what that looks like, look up the beast of seven shoots, a picture of one that was, that was accidentally caught on film up in seven shoots provincial park in the, in, in Quebec, Canada. Um, but that's a type three and I've, uh, found those in in East Texas and Western Oklahoma, uh Iowa, central Missouri. Um uh I think where out there and scattered around. They're 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 the least common and I often wonder if if they are the results of maybe inbreeding or something. Um back uh one of the things that that I strongly believe is that when the white man came into this country and, and were trying to wipe out the natives and purposely infected the natives with, with measles and smallpox and different diseases like that? I think not only did they wipe out the, uh, the Native Americans, that they also wiped out a huge portion of the Bigfoot population. Um, and therefore you had very isolated pockets. of of survivors that ended up being inbred and I think that's maybe a good probability that's where these um, where these type threes come from because one of the things that I have seen and I've, Louisiana is another place I found them, one of the things I have seen in places where we find their tracks and stuff, many of them have three toes and are Leave three-toed tracks, and uh, digits, toes, and fingers growing together in in humans is one thing that you get from from inbreeding of humans. So, I think it's a high probability that that could be also uh, uh, same thing with Bigfoot because I believe that they're very closely related to us, um, and we know that that. In humans when they've been inbred for generations that the facial features change and stuff like that. Um and you get a, a certain look in humans, so I think you'd get you know same a similar type thing, not the same look, but a similar effect and you inbreed Bigfoot too for too many generations.
0: So in your opinion, Bigfoot is some sort of uh creature that's running around like, like an ape? That's it's just kind of, or is that, I mean, what do you
2: believe? Well, I, I think they are, uh, they're a hominid. And I think that they, they're extremely intelligent. They may be the result of a remnant population of Neander- Neanderthal. Uh, I do believe that they are genetically close enough to us that they can, that they can uh, uh, breed with us. There are, I have encountered, um, Native Americans who have very compelling stories and I have been shown people who have Bigfoot blood in them, according to the, yes. And I strongly believe that they are, that they are our closest genetic, what would you say that they're, they're, they're closer to us genetically than any other animal. Much more close than chimpanzees or gorillas or orangutans or anything any of the other great apes. The
0: one the one thing that I would say though, because you have had so many encounters with them, more so yes. than like almost anyone I mean that that I've that I've talked to, um, uh uh-huh. it, It's because you know, wouldn't it make more sense like if these if this was some sort of like natural flesh and blood creature, which I'm not saying they can't be. They can become flesh and blood. They can, you know, whatever. But I don't, I don't, I I have a hard time finding people who have seen them so many times without having any kind with, you know, without it being some sort of supernatural or or other type situation. Typically, it's like one off, you know, they'll see it one time and that's it because they're so hard and elusive to see.
2: Well, I'll tell you something, Josh. And, um. The more I learn about them, the more questions I have. I'll tell you that, and anybody that tells you that they're an expert on bigfoot is a is a liar also anybody any decent researcher, no matter if it's Bigfoot or cancer research or or researching you know asteroids or you know planets around other suns, other stars any any researcher that's that's worth his salt or her salt. Has got to be willing to relook at their data, and 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 change their their theories or their hypotheses. I used to think that they were flesh and blood, purely flesh and blood, and they were just like us, and there wasn't anything supernatural about them. However, my friend Jimmy Osborne and I had an, had an encounter um, just a few months ago, uh, not very far from here, less than uh, about less than an hour's drive from here and we were trying to find a place where jimmy and i had both been as as childs and both had very strong memories that led us to believe that you know that that would be a really good place to go research and we went out looking for it one night and turned out we didn't find it we thought we had had Gotten close to it, but uh, but we were wrong. But it led us to a, an interesting area, and we we were up on top of a steep, you know, fairly high hill, overlooking a uh, one of the smaller rivers in the area. It's um, it's actually a tributary of the Tennessee River. So we were up there, and we ran into a, a dead end. The road continued on for another half a mile to some, uh, like a summer home or something that was up on top of this big hill. But we stopped and we we got out and uh, looked around. We both both of us had thermal imagers with us. Uh, mine is a mine is a FLIR brand. His is uh, ATN or it's, one, it's another it's another one of the better brands. And. Um, So we were looking around and didn't see anything. And so we decided to do some calling. And now I'll preface this to say that this was a fairly bright night. It was, um, there was a high overcast, but it was thin and there was a full moon or close to full moon up. So there was fairly bright, diffuse light on everything. So we did some calling. Uh, Jimmy's got better hearing than I do, and if I remember correctly, he thought he heard something, and we got to looking around with our thermals, and both of us saw a a booger came up came up out of a deep draw, and we were right next to another summer cabin, and that had a nice yard and everything, and back. In the backyard behind this cabin, there were, there were a bunch of 55-gallon drums sitting there. And these were plastic drums. And I don't know if they were for water storage or why they had them. But this thing came up and was behind the 55-gallon drums and about 40 yards from us. Jimmy's was new enough that he didn't know how to take pictures with it. My flare is old enough that it takes pictures but it's really rotten quality. We tried looking at it through a um a little night vision attachment and it didn't work very well. So anyway, we are we're we're looking at this and we're looking around and we hear and we got a this went on about 3 or 4 or 5 minutes after the last call I had made. About 10 minutes after the last call I made, straight um, would have been west of us, we got a very loud answer from across a square 40-acre field. And so that would have put it about, you know, 440 yards from us. We looked over there and with mine all I could see was all I could see was a faint blob. Jimmy's has a lot better range and resolution than mine and he actually could make out that it was something upright over there as opposed to a deer. Cuz we had seen deer out there earlier. The deer had hauled butt and were gone. This thing um we we called back and forth and this thing walked out into the field and walked out about probably a hundred to one hundred and fifty yards out from the from the tree line. So it closed the distance to us to, to about three hundred yards. In the meantime we started hearing something else coming up from the um, north where that first one had come from. That was lay was by the, in the, but in the meantime, the one that had come up and was by the fifty five gallon drums had laid down on the ground on its belly, and it was looking looking out from behind the easternmost fifty um, five gallon drum and the base of a tree. There was about an eighteen twenty inch diameter tree, and the booger was laying in the gap between the tree and one of the 55-gallon drums we could clearly see through our thermals there was another one that was coming up from that direction it got up there and it did not stop at the uh at the 55-gallon drums where the first one was it kept moving along the edge of the tree line in the backyard of that cabin coming towards us it moved up to where it was within 25, 30 yards of us, we could very, very clearly see it. We could even see, even in my sorry one, I could even see the hotter spots where his eyes were. I could, with my naked eye, it was bright enough that I could get glimpses of movement there in the tree line. It walked out of the tree line and out into the road on the other side. Like I said, we'd, we'd come up to a gate and had to stop. And the road, you know, went on beyond that gate for uh, about 150 yards and then curved back to the south and went up on top of a hill to, you know, another summer home or, you know, vacation home. This thing walked out into into that gravel road and it stood there looking at us we decided (laughs) but we both began to feel that we were getting that we were in danger in the meantime the one the big one that was had been screaming at us that was across the 40 acre field that had been out there at, at uh about 300 yards away he closed the gap to about 200 yards away and the only thing and but there was a draw in the field That he had, would have had to have crossed, gone down, in and up out of to get over where we were. But so he was up on the side of that draw and he was doing some vocals and he was pacing back and forth and he'd stand there and he'd be rocking back and forth like they do when, when they're sort of unsure what they want to do. In the meantime, this other one was right there in front of us and we were both getting nervous and Jimmy said, light him up. And I had a, I've got a, Pretty powerful flashlight. It's, it's strong enough. I don't. I can't remember how many candle power it is, but it's an LED flashlight. It's strong enough that it's got a bunch of cooling fins on the on the business end of it to keep the bulb assembly cool or the LED assembly. I clicked that thing on. We couldn't see it. I thought, what the hell? Excuse. I'm sorry for, for cussing. Well, hell, That's not too bad. Go ahead. And. and I raised my thermal back up. I could see it in the thermal, but I couldn't. We neither one of us could see it with our naked eyes, but both of us could see it in our thermals. And when I shined the light on, even though we couldn't see it in the thermal, we saw it. It turned and it walked about six or seven feet to our right into the back into the tree line, but it didn't run away. But we couldn't see it with our naked eye. Jimmy clicked on his flashlight and couldn't see it. I mean, we couldn't see it. We had both of our flashlights on it. Could not see it, but we could see it in the thermals. Now, it gets weirder. The, the one that was on the other side of the draw that was out in the field, that was about 200 yards away. that had come from the far side of the field. It starts moving to the north, down the edge of that draw which was taking it towards the trees that we were near the one that was right there close to us that we couldn't see with the naked eye it walks back out into the gravel road and as we were looking at it through the thermals at least through mine it's legs and arms and heads were disappearing, dis- dis- and all I could see in front of me in the thermal, I couldn't see anything with the naked eye. But all we could see in our thermals was just sort of an oval-shaped, fuzzy-edged glow through the thermals. Couldn't see anything with the naked eye.
1: Now, wow, yeah, I've been in that situation before.
2: And we uh, we looked back over there to the one that was laying on the ground. Beside the fifty-five gallon drums, between the, the the last drum and the tree, it was gone. In the meantime, we looked back out in the field for the big one that was uh that had been on the other side of the draw. It was it had disappeared into the tree line. We figured, and then about that time, we started hearing very heavy footsteps coming towards us through the woods from that direction. That was the point that we decided it was time to open up a. Extra large, fast acting can of gone. So we hopped in the truck and got out of there because there were three boogers right there, close, very close. One of them was coming at us and the other one was doing some kind of a disappearing act. And then we had one that we didn't know where it was, where it had gone to. So we decided the prudent thing to do was to leave. So we did. Um, Now that has changed. I've never had anything like that happen before, but there we were with two different brands and quality levels of thermals that we could see this thing with, and some very good flashlights, and we could not see the, that one with our naked eye. We could see the one laying well, on the ground. No, I, don't, I have no idea. I don't know what, to, I have no, I'm, I'm
0: at a loss. Well, see, that's the thing. I mean, like if, if, you know, what you say, these are our relatives and they're just like a creature that lives out there and they can breed with us. Um, I, you know, the way, the way I believe. I mean, maybe they can because, I mean, you know, the, the fallen angels bred with man, you know, but <laughs>
2: exactly,
0: I don't think that these things are normal flesh and blood, evolutionarily evolved creatures. I just don't. Right.
2: No. I think that, but the, the connection with the Nephilim,
1: uh-huh.
2: the connection with the Nephilim, the more I study it, the more I believe there's something there. I'll tell you something else that we've learned. Few times when, when I've been in danger with some other research, researcher friends have been in danger. We have gotten out of that and made them, and have made them leave us by invoking the name of Christ, by Mm -hmm. rebuking them in the name of Jesus Christ.
1: Right.
2: And they leave. (laughs) You just, if you say, in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, I rebuke you, leave us, leave,
1: you know. Leave
2: us alone. Leave this area. They will. At least a couple of times I've done it, and um, I know other researchers that have done it. Uh, but that's sort of used to my ace in the hole was a really good bright flashlight, shined right in their face. But uh, I have found that rebuking them in the name of Jesus and commanding them to leave, you know, calling upon the name of Christ is is more effective. Now, uh, in the heat of a bad situation, you know you better have have thought about a lot about this, cause, so that you know so that you can use that technique. But I know the the more I learn about them, the more I realize that that there is some kind of spiritual, paranormal, weird quality to them. Or- mm-hmm connection with
0: them. And when you when you first started all this Kumbo, like you like you for a long time, you were just you believed that they were just a just a just a flesh and blood, you know, anomaly running around out there, right? Yeah. Yeah. I
2: thought they were just an undiscovered ape.
0: Yeah. That's what what most people do believe until they come across a million reports of them doing things that just defy all logic. I mean you know, I get reports all the time, just in this area. Yeah. You know, doing things that just aren't natural.
2: Anybody that anybody that knew Bill White knew that Bill was absolutely one of the smartest, sharpest, most successful researchers that's ever been been out there. Honest to a fault, uh, just wonderful guy. And you know he passed away back in in February. But I I was blessed to be able to spend time with Bill at his home. And you know, got to know he and his wife, you know, fairly well and um and Bill actually asked me to do uh to do a show for him and, and to, to tell some uh, some experiences that he had had and that he his health was was bad and he, he had promised to do it and he couldn't, so he asked me to do it for him. That's the level of trust that Bill put in me. And um but Bill, we finally, we got to the point where he and I talked about a lot of stuff that we wouldn't talk about to anybody else. Bill and I were convinced that there is a remnant population of dire wolves in various parts of this country. Uh, I've encountered them, Bill's encountered them. There are a number, quite a number of reports. There was even a a full a full amount of a dire wolf that was in a bar somewhere in Idaho or Montana for years until it mysteriously disappeared
1: um, but you know i've seen I've seen wolves that
2: that looked more like hyenas and were huge that I believe I saw a dire wolf bill bill described the same. Same thing to me. And there is a thing out in parts of the Washita Mountains of Arkansas and the Kaimichi Mountains of um, Oklahoma, which they're the same mountain chain. It's just Kaimichi's on the Oklahoma side and Washita's on the Arkansas side. The locals call it the hissing thing. And Bill and I both independently came to the same conclusion that that the hissing things are direwolves. So there are things after, there, but Bill told me a story, and I passed it on, that um, he was researching in an area out in Arkansas where a law enforcement officer had had a series of extremely strange encounters with what he thought was just regular Bigfoot that turned out to be Bigfoot doing things that. You know, that he'd never seen or hurt, he never heard of them doing. Bill went out there investigating. He encountered one up close. Very close. In fact, it was so close, Bill thought his, Bill thought it was fixing to kill him. But Bill rebuked it. It turned and it went walking away from him. It walked right into a thicket of, of privet hedge and briars that you couldn't have driven a tank through or a dozer through hardly, and it just faded right into it. It didn't, and it didn't wiggle a leaf. He said it's like it sort of dematerialized and, and went into the thing. Yeah.
1: Wow.
0: Well, see, yeah. one of the things I think, Tim, is that the reason that that, that someone like you would see this many uh creatures over your life is because you're an experiencer and i don't think if these things were completely a physical creature completely physical manifestation if it wasn't sort of half spiritual half physical creature or just a spiritual creature in in, in its true nature which we all are i guess really um but i mean like these things know how to manipulate you know and i was just it it would be hard to, to, to like f- for a flesh and blood Bigfoot researcher, they're, they're going to look at your accounts and go, no way that's possible. No way that this person has had all these encounters when I've been out in the field for this amount of X amount of days and in, in years or whatever. And it, cause you know, I mean, some of them like, like have, have go out there a week at a time and then, and not see anything in, in areas that are supposedly Bigfoot hotspots. But I, I tell these people that I believe you have to have the eye, and now, and what I mean by that in Spanish it's ojo del taro. That's like the gift of the eye, and if you don't have that, then you're not going to see them, and or if they don't want to present themselves to you, they're not going to. They can they can manifest themselves however they want, and they can cloak too. There's a whole litany of things they can do. Uh, qu- we're quickly on the direwolf thing you were talking about, Tim. Um, one of the things I was going to tell you, I I get a lot of reports uh, here in Texas in particular, I get a lot of them in, in two different sides of the, of the, of the state. One is in the big thicket in East Texas, where it seems like it's, it's so wild and jungle. And it really is one of two places in the country that's jungle. The other one being in in Florida, but it's, it's so thick, you know, in, in, in Caddo Lake, you know, I mean, it's like, you can't even, I mean, you can't even map it all with with a, with a, with a uh, satellite. So you get right. reports of these exactly prehistoric. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's very it's very jungle like. Yeah. So dense, you get yeah. these reports of these. Uh, what we actually, it's funny. You called that. You said the Bigfoots were called catamounts, and I've heard people call them haints. But the catamount, my grandfather used to call the catamount. It was this big, oversized uh, cougar that that they would talk about. That was like larger than a normal cougar or it was like a panther but you get these weird reports of these black panthers of these oversized cougars some of them have really big fangs it kind of think makes you think maybe they're a, a smilodon or a descendant of a smilodon or some type of them of a saber-toothed cat and then you get these reports uh those are kind of rare but you do get them and but then you get quite a few of these reports of these large hyena looking creatures and now I don't think those are dire wolves. The dire wolf, as we know now, paleontologists have kind of been able to piece together like how they looked. They would have actually looked like foxes, more like foxes, but oversized with like huge thick bones that are bigger and stronger than an actual wolf. And they they would be more closely related to an extinct species of dog, um, fox, dog type creatures. But the, 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 these large, you get reports of these oversized wolves. I mean, we've even seen them on YouTube. You're going like that wolf has be 200 pounds, you know I mean? And, but I've even gotten reports of them being bigger than that. And it looks like an oversized timber wolf. I don't think that's a dire wolf. I think that's something else. I think that could be a relic population too. Uh,
2: like right here, 50 yards from, from where I'm sitting is, is a, uh, I've got a big, soybean field and we had winter wheat on it before the soybean you know and when the wheat was up about knee high on me um steel green uh this spring um my uh my two german shepherds were out there piddling around after dark and uh in in that wheat and probably messing. Well, they were out there, you know, doing their just nightly little walk. And I was sitting there in the yard and, and watching them. And I had, you know, I had a one of my pretty strong flashlights that would shine up, you know, pretty much across this 40 acre field, you know, shine about 400 yards. They were out near the middle of it. There is a grove of trees and a deep gully that, um, uh, that goes out into this field from the south. I noticed that both dogs all of a sudden had stopped and were looking south towards that grove of trees. And I noticed all of a sudden Jake, the old dog, he took off running as fast as he could on his old arthritic legs, 12 year old arthritic, 12 or 13 year old arthritic legs, coming to the house. Joe was standing there. With his tail up in the air and ears up and, and looking south towards the end of that grove of trees, he even woofed a couple of times. All of a sudden, now the the uh, wheat was high enough that it was up about halfway on the bodies of um of Joe and Jake, who are large, you know, German shepherds. Jake weighs up in you know, in the seventies uh and Joe weighs up close to you know like 85 90 pounds all of a sudden this huge canid wolf-looking canid comes running out of the running out of those uh that grove of trees to the south running out in the field and i'm like holy crap you know i I know Joe whirled and took off running and to the house this thing was after him it stopped for a second it ran out in the field and it stopped when it stopped I could see 4 or 5 6 inches of daylight under its belly whereas my 85, 90 pound German shepherd the wheat was up halfway on his body I'm like holy crap this is an enormous dog you know or, or some kind of a wolf or something and then it took off after joe and joe is the fastest german shepherd i've ever seen he's fast enough that he can chase down a buck deer in the open he can he can outrun a a, a buck deer and this damn thing was reeling joe in and i, I go running down towards the field yelling and hollering and as i'm running of course but i can't really shine my flashlight out in the field very much but it's bright enough night i could see both animals headed towards me fast finally i got close to the edge of the field and i stopped and i put that you know soaked up flashlight right in that that thing's face and he slammed on the brakes and um joe came running past me and up on the porch he went and pouncing at the door walking in and um and this thing stood there and looked at me for a bit and then I suddenly realized that I don't even have a gun on me and uh I was wondering if I could kill that thing with a with a uh, a good knife and a and a heavy-duty flashlight <laughs> but fortunately it turned and went and went trotting away but I've seen a lot of wolves and I don't know what the hell that thing was um I've seen quite a few wolves um What color Uh, was it? it Beige. Mm. It was beige with a darker, had darker colored um, snout. And, uh, but it was, uh, it had a, it had a wolf-like, you know, bushy tail. Um, But it wasn't, I've seen timber wolves and I've seen red wolves and it didn't look like either one of those. But it was. It was taller than any I've seen,
0: did it look hyena like
2: No, it didn't. It didn't have the big shoulders like the hyenas, like the hyena looking ones that I've seen you now this thing looked like a souped up big ass, you know bigger than usual wolf and i and it did look sort of sharp featured you know it its nose and its ears looked sharper than than what I've seen on wolves. And you know, it's weird you describing describing that they think dire wolves were more, more fox looking. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if that was a dire wolf or not. All I know it was nothing like I've ever seen before. And I've killed a lot of feral dogs. I've never shot a wolf, but um, but I've seen a lot of wolves. Um. Now back to what you're saying. How come people like me are able to see a lot of them? I research with a group of guys that that are utterly fantastic researchers, and most people have never never heard of them: uh, Jimmy Osmer, uh, Greg House, Troy Allen, uh, Cheryl Corntassel, um, Tim Smallwood, and there, there's others: uh, Kim Davis. Um, we've been running around together for years, and. Mark Maycheck. Um, Martin knows Mark real well. Martin and I have known Mark about the same amount of time. But one of the things we've talked about many times amongst ourselves is that that we believe that that people are somehow marked or by these things. (laughs) You know that once they have their first encounter, somehow they're able to see them, and like you said, it's something about you're able to see them much more easily after that, um, and be aware of their presence much more easily. Um, A lot of these guys that I researched with grew up around them. I remember, I remember hearing them and stuff when I was two years old, two and a half years old. Um, Troy had the same thing. Troy Allen's had more encounters with them than I have.
0: And it's not unusual you know, I want to say this. I mean, like, people say, oh, it's it's ridiculous, you know, that somebody could have so many encounters. No, it's not. I mean, if somebody it's has not. the ability to see through that veil, then they will see them. And I really believe that these creatures come, I've said this a million times, like, you know, they, they come into our world and they become more physical as they're here. One of the things I was going to tell you, um, there was a type of hyena, like, that lived— in north america and it had it was more rangy looking than the african hyena it was like a um i forgot what you would call it like uh they call it like the running hyena or the hunting hyena it's a north american hyena and it, 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 i can here you go i just i just looked it up right now the name of it is hard to print i don't know if it's Chasma portites or Chasma portites. i don't know how they pronounce that but uh, you can just look it right up on Wikipedia, and it talks about them. It's, it says also known as the hunting or running hyena is an extinct genus of of hyenas. Uh huh. Yeah, and so um, it's distributed in, Nor-Asia, in Eurasia, North America, and Africa during the to Pleistocene epochs. And so when, when you when you look at this creature, like like, and now somebody told me the other day, we, I was I was talking to this guy, and I was actually kind of kind of. Bouncing some ideas back and forth, he's an author, and uh, I was talking to him at the UFO conference, and he was saying, "We actually we got in a conversation about these uh, prehistoric creatures from the from these different eras, you know, um, the hey, Pleistocene." I,
2: I just, I just looked this thing up.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> uh, this is the coloration of. <laughs> I don't know about the stripes on their legs, but this is the coloration of this damn thing I saw. The ears are a little bit different, but. Coloration
0: is right. <laughs> yeah, and and the ears may not be because cause we don't have yeah. a f- a physical specimen right. to t- to take and look and go okay. Like we've found mammoths and different types of of Pleistocene creatures, but we don't have one of these that says, "Hey, you know, like like this is you know." But I mean, it, it, when you look at the at the cases of it, and, and now this this researcher was telling me the other day, he was kind of like. Saying that 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 he had talked to someone you know that that fully believed that these were what these creatures were now, I propose that what those creatures are aren't necessarily totally related to dogman or Bigfoot or any of these other weird phenomena, if that is a Correct. actual true cryptid that is what me and Barton call cryptids, Barton, what do we call uh, bigfoot and dogman
1: in humanoids
0: in humanoids
1: much uh, yeah it's a much Much closer, uh, fit to, uh, what we're dealing Mm -hmm. with here. So, the cryptids are simply natural animals waiting to be classified or discovered, which uh, Bigfoot and Uh, Rediscover, all all those things like that are rediscovered, correct? And, but we're dealing with something totally different here when it comes to these humanoids. They're not coelacanths or or copies or giant squid that we can actually go out and find, you know, uh, there's something. Something else, they're beyond what we can comprehend at the moment. I don't think they're they're
0: Gigantopithecus either.
1: No, No. definitely not. And, Sam, to your point that you used to think that they were uh, our close cousins or maybe a relic hominid uh, along that line. There, There has never been in the history of the Earth any relic hominid species that could turn invisible to the naked human eye.
0: Yeah. Or walk
1: or walk across gravel without le- making a sound, or walk across right. mud without leaving a footprint. They just, you know, it's in, it's impossible. Yeah. They, they, never There's no one, North so. American
0: ape. I mean, ever that we've discovered any sort of uh, yeah. fossil evidence for ever. It's never it's never been done. So I mean, when you, when you sit back and you look at like the evidence, it's just not there. But then. But you got thousands and thousands and thousands of reports. I mean, heck, you know, I can't. I probably could. Me between me and Barton, we probably got a couple thousand between the two of us. You know, when we compare yeah. notes, it's it's unreal cool. how many we got. And then you take your stories, Kumbo. I mean, we could all write books until the end of time with this stuff. The, the thing is, this uh, creature, this Chasma Port Porta or whatever it's called, however they want to pronounce it. Uh, this this prehistoric hyena. This is what I propose, gentlemen, and maybe you guys can give me your ideas. We can bounce them off of each other here. But I think that this thing could be a a a remnants like of of a population of these creatures that came from those creatures. You know, creatures adapt and become different things over time. Correct. You know, Correct. I mean, and people argue about it all day long. Whether it's evolution, adaptation, whatever things do. Change and become something else, and, and and over time, you know, um, you, you know, and it wouldn't be that dramatic look of a horse. shift. It would just, yeah, exactly. Look at the horse. So when you look at this creature, like maybe its ancestors were these larger, rangier hyenas that died out, you know, seven hundred thousand years ago or however long it was. And but then you start to look at like, okay, this thing, the the, the their descendants learn to survive by becoming a little bit smaller and not in eating as much food, you know, and the megafauna died off. So you didn't have that as prey. So the ones that were able to adapt, um, like the gray wolves, you know, they were able to adapt and overcome and take down smaller prey and they were able to hunt more often. They had more stamina. And so they, they outlived dire wolves and all these other, uh, creatures and so this could be a relic population of an of a hyena died type creature. Now, now when you l- look at it for a minute here, just let's just follow me. Like go to like with this Mokili Mombembe. Uh, that's that's supposedly a type of Brontosaurus that lives in Africa, but when you get the descriptions of it, it's in the it's in the middle of the Congo. When the, but the descriptions of it. It's, you're, you're sitting there listening you're going like um, there's no way that they could be a brontosaurus because it wouldn't even be a quarter the size of it now it would be like twice the size of an elephant but you're talking like a brontosaurus you know would be like you know 30 times the size of an elephant or 20 times whatever it is it's, it's, it's massive it's this massive creature that hasn't existed this you know okay folks so that's gonna do it for this episode uh, tune in to the next episode where I return with my guest and with Barton Nunley. And thank you for listening to PRT. Don't forget to like and subscribe. Good night.